Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? On the day that we're recording this, it is June 19th. And June 19th is a very important day in American history. It is also sometimes referred to as Juneteenth, which is a combination of June and 19th, and it celebrates the day that the last enslaved people in Texas were informed of the Emancipation Proclamation and also the end of the Civil War. Specifically, it commemorates when Union Army General Gordon Granger announced federal orders in Galveston, Texas in 1865. So, a common misconception is that this day marks the end of slavery in the United States. However, the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to rebellion states, so it only applied to the Confederate states, and slavery was still legal and existed within the Union borders until they ratified the 13th Amendment on December 6, 1865. So, during the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd, 1862, and then formally issued it on January 1st, 1863, declaring that all enslaved people in the Confederate States of America, not in the Union, were free. Then the 13th Amendment was passed by the Senate on April 8th, 1864, and the House on January 31st, 1865. So the official end date of the Civil War is often cited as May 8th, 1865, but the war effectively ended on April 9th, 1865, when the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant of the Union, and other Confederate generals throughout the southern states followed suit. The last surrendered on June 23rd, 1865. So keep in mind that this time, when the Civil War ended, slavery was technically still legal in the Union. The 13th Amendment had been passed in April of that year, but was not ratified until until the end of the year. So Juneteenth marks the celebration of the last enslaved people in the South finding out that they had been freed under the Emancipation Proclamation. And we were talking about how this is actually kind of a holiday that is not spoken about a lot. With the current Black Lives Matter movement and the protests, there's been a lot of attention around it and information around it in the internet and through Instagram, and all of that's really great. And so we're sort of starting to spread more information. But there are also a lot of really important moments in Black history, in American Black history, that are never taught. For example, Seneca Village, which was a 19th century settlement founded in 1825 by free Blacks in New York City. It was the first community of its kind, and then it was forcefully destroyed to make room for Central Park. And actually, the settlement was largely forgotten until 1992 when a book, called The Park and the People, A History of Central Park, was written about it, and since then they've dug up parts of the village and have found traces of it, but there was never any compensation or never any apologies issued for the fact that this black community was destroyed to make way for something white people wanted. Similarly, the Tulsa Race Massacre, also sometimes called Tulsa Race Riot, the Greenwood Massacre, or Black Wall Street Massacre, which took place on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, where mobs of white residents attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It has been called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. 
and the attack was carried out on ground and from private aircraft destroying more than 35 square blocks of district of what was at the time the wealthiest black community in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. And the massacre began over Memorial Day weekend after a 19-year-old black shoeshiner was accused of raping a white girl. And the Oklahoma National Guard actually had to be brought in and martial law had to be declared in order to control the situation. And after it, about 10,000 black people were left homeless and property damages amounted to more than 1.5 million in real estate and 750,000 in personal property, which would be in 2019 the equivalent of 32.25 million. And their property was never recovered, nor were they ever compensated for any of it. So as you can see, this sort of a trend that's kind of emerging. Also, another big moment in black history is the Igbo landing, which happened in Dunbar Creep on St. Simons Island in Glynn County, Georgia. It was the setting of a mass suicide in 1803 by the captive Igbo people who had taken control of their slave ship and refused to submit to slavery in the United States. Beyonce used imagery from this in her visual album Lemonade in her song Love Drought, and she depicts this image of the Igbo people walking to their death in the water rather than be enslaved. It's really shocking how much of black history has been erased. Recently, I was watching and I read the book also by Margaret Lee Shetterly called Hidden Figures, and it's about the black women, the mathematicians who basically put a man into space for NASA. They were the human calculators that did all the mathematical calculations that put a man on the moon. But all of these films and all these stories before, all we've seen is, you know, these rooms in NASA full of white men. We think about the white astronauts. We think about the white president. We never, I, I never knew that without these women doing these calculations and all of this black labor that was going on during segregation times, it's a really amazing film. I would really recommend it. But they're doing these calculations and they still have to use separate bathrooms and separate kettles. So yeah, there's been a lot of erasure of black history and an erasure of the achievements of black people. And it's amazing that even now, like we see so much achievement by black people. Imagine if all of the invisible stuff was made visible. Also, I'd recommend a lot of Instagram accounts that deal only in black history that are dedicated to documenting and bringing to light all of these figures. I was actually watching John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, and he was talking about this controversy of the Confederacy statues being pulled down in the US. And of course, in Europe, we've seen statues recently being pulled down in Bristol, in Belgium, of former slave traders and exploiters of people as they should be. But on last week tonight, a few years ago, John Oliver recommended like some other people that could be put up, black historical figures instead. One of the ones he mentioned was Robert Small, who was born into slavery, but he stole a Confederate boat to escape slavery. And then he served five terms in Congress. Like what? I never even heard of this guy. Or Bessie Coleman, who he suggested should be put up in Atlanta, Georgia, who was the first African-American woman pilot. Again, never heard of her. And then, of course, there's this issue of the statues that are being pulled down. 
And a lot of people who are for the statue staying up, they say, well, that's our history. And by pulling it down, you're erasing a part of our history. But actually what's being erased or what has always been erased is the experiences of African-Americans. In the US, the Southern Poverty Law Center found that there were 1,500 memorials to Confederate figures, including 10 US military bases that were named after Confederate officers for some reason. And when people say, oh, you're erasing our history, well, these statues were put up as a message to black people. So while a few of them were put up immediately after the Civil War in graveyards and stuff, actually, most of them went up decades afterwards. A lot of them went up, for example, during the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, which again was a message to preserve this idea that, you know, blacks were not equal and to glorify white people over black people and this system of slavery. So actually... There was an organization called the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and they were a group of Southern socialites who basically made it their mission to conserve the history of the Confederacy. So they did this not only through putting up statues or having halls or bases or forts or whatnot named after Confederate generals, so on and so forth, but they also infiltrated schools and used their influence to sort of warp the history. And it's actually directly thanks to these women, which women, women did this, that the Confederate mentality or this pride about the Confederacy lives on in the South. These white women, you know, the Confederacy existed for not even for five years and they've managed 200 years later, give or take, I'm not that great at math, but 200 years later, it's still a thing. They did a bomb-ass job at preserving such a terrible institution. There does seem to be in the US and everywhere, in fact, not only the US, but since we're talking about the US, a warped understanding of history. So the Civil War was really about slaves and slavery. And everyone in the Confederate States, the leaders, they were fighting for the preservation of slavery. Alexander H. Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederate States, said in his cornerstone speech that the cornerstone rests on the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. So everyone who has the Confederate flag or is proud of their Confederate history or something is actually saying that black people should be slaves to white people and that they are inferior, which I can't believe that I have to point this out in 2020, is scientifically wrong. All that is different is the color of their skin. I mean, it's amazing that these ideas are still a basis for conflict in our society. But anyway, back to the warping of history, because the Pew Research Center did a survey where they asked Americans what their impression of the main cause of the Civil War was. And most people in the US said it was about state rights. After that, they said it was about slavery, which is incredible. First of all, I went to school in the US for a few months and all they teach is US history. Just all they teach is about the Civil War. And they got that wrong. <laughs> like, how is it 
possible. You know what you said before about the statues and them taking down the statues and the people are worried that they won't know their own history? That's insane and wrong because we both live in Germany. There are no statues of Hitler anywhere. We sure as hell all know our history because we're not allowed to forget it, right? Because history is written by the victor. And especially when it comes to American history, like it or not, white people were the victor. So they got to determine what stories are told. And well, you know, as we all know, white people aren't that great. And they're also not that great at talking about history that doesn't directly shine them in a nice light or benefit them in some way. And they tend to bury anything else. I remember when we were in school, we did learn world history. But one of the things that as an adult looking back on it strikes me as really odd is that nobody ever seemed to have an opinion on world history. And what I mean with that is I remember we were learning about South Africa and apartheid. And of course, obviously, the implication was that apartheid was bad and apartheid was wrong. But nobody ever pointed out and being like, also, the Boers coming to South Africa was wrong. The sort of implication of wrongness only went as so far as actively killing people. The fact that they, well, I guess they did that before, but the fact that they just colonized a different country was never in any way viewed as wrong or bad. And I remember when we learned about the student uprising in Soweto, and thinking about it now, nobody said that what happened there was wrong. There were 700 plus people killed, and we learned about it in such a sterile, factual way. And I'm like, these things are wrong. They were just wrong. And we should be teaching them as wrong because that's the way that this narrative perpetuates itself. If we don't condemn these acts as white Europeans, then they're not going to, like, we have to talk about them as bad and wrong so that history doesn't repeat itself. It's really interesting that you mention Hitler because here, obviously, after the war, nobody wanted to glorify Hitler anymore. So, for example, in Berlin, Theodor Heusplatz, which used to be called Adolf Hitlerplatz, got renamed. But recently, with all the Black Lives Matter stuff, what happened at Mohrenstraße, which translates to Moor Street and is a reference to Germany's colonial history, the Mohren got graffitied over as a message, you know, we need to rename this street, which I think we do. Interesting fact, I have been to Mohrenstraße many, many, many times. And it never ever occurred to me that it meant more. I always thought of carrots. I thought like more is carrots. You know, like when you mishear the words of a song for years and somebody tells you the right thing and you're like, oh, what? I had to look up why I was offensive. I was like, is carrots like a derogatory term? But anyway, so you were mentioning about the history of Germany and my mom posted something on Facebook this week, which was an opinion by a white woman called Susan Neiman in The Guardian, which is uh, mostly run by white people. Uh, we discuss media and whiteness in our last episode. So if you want to know more about that dynamic, listen to that episode. But she wrote an opinion last week and it was titled, Germany confronted its racist legacy. Britain and US must do the same. And she says, Germany has reimagined its public space and it has paid reparations and it rewrote school lesson plans to include material against racism. 
and kind of reconciled to its murderous history, this woman also wrote a book that is called Learning from the Germans. But anyway, what's kind of really interesting is nobody ever talks about the colonial history of Germany. And there was a much more comprehensive and better opinion in the New York Times, which is titled The Big Hole in Germany's Nazi Reckoning. The author points out that the colonial era Germans set a brutal example for the Nazis to follow. So, for example, in Namibia, a German general called Lothar von Trotha, which sounds like a James Bond villain made-up name, but okay, if that's his name, that's his name. No wonder he was evil. He set up concentration camps in Namibia. And also, it took a while, even now, for the Germans to admit that what they did in different parts of Africa, now they are referring to it as genocide, but before they kind of never did. So in addition to tens of thousand deaths in Namibia, at least a hundred thousand East African resistance fighters known as the Maji Maji died in a war to defend their territory against German forces. And then the German colonizers took skulls and human remains from Africa back to Germany for research. And they used junk science that claims to be able to judge personality, intelligence and other characteristics by the shape of one skull. And this became part of the racist ideology that the Nazis then took over and it led to their whole vision of global expansion and domination. It's because Germany lost the Second World War. History is written by the victors, right? When we colonized Africa, all of Europe was doing it. So they got to determine the narrative. Deborah Feldman, whose memoirs was used as the basis for the Netflix show Unorthodox, she actually wrote a really interesting article in which she was talking about how the collective guilt in Germany about the Holocaust has had the opposite effect. Maybe that's incorrectly said. She was talking about how the fact that the entire country did this Aufarbeitung relieved individual people of their own guilt and led them to have to not to reckon with their own history. Because the country did it for you, you personally don't have to deal with your history. Which was a really interesting point. I don't know if it's relevant here. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Germany, after the war, they said they went back to like year zero. And they were trying to raise all of the bad influence of the Nazis, get rid of everyone in power and all this kind of stuff. But the fact is that the school teachers who were given the Nazi books to teach, they taught that stuff. And then year zero happened. Those school teachers were still school teachers. They were just given different books. And it's the same with the politicians, actually. If you look at who remained in power, because you couldn't get rid of everyone. That was the problem. Everyone was culpable. But then you couldn't get rid of everyone in power or all the CEOs of all the companies, or all the businessmen, all the politicians. So a lot of them stayed. And when you read Hannah Arendt's book the banality of evil, you really, really see how few people were actually brought to justice and how many people after just a few years came back into the same positions that they had before. So like the power structures basically remain sort of the same. But I think it is useful, like the history lessons and the fact that people's stories are told and there is a collective guilt which just makes, I mean, there must be a reason why Germany is the only country in Europe now, more or less, that doesn't have an extreme right government. 
or it's totally extreme. And I think that's because there are certain checks and balances and everything in place because they know the pattern of history. On the the fact of guilt and discomfort, though, I think a lot of what we were having with the AFD and stuff is that also a lot of young people, they're like, oh, we grew up and we're just supposed to be guilty. Like, this is not our guilt. You know, should our identity be defined as this, as Germans? Should we always be defined by these crimes and I think in some ways that might be what caused a rebellion. I sort of have a bit of an issue with the way that history is framed, specifically German history, because in no way do I mean to belittle or excuse anything that happened. But I think that this framing of the Holocaust as the worst thing that ever happened is really harmful because there shouldn't be, you can't do a hierarchy of human suffering. Who is to say that what happened in Germany was any worse than apartheid or the Khmer Rouge or what happened in China? Just because it was better documented or more systematically processed, human suffering, there is no hierarchy of human suffering. All atrocities against humans are bad. And I also think that this framing of, oh, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in history, sort of leads to not making small, but if other things happen, you're always going to be like, well, it wasn't as bad as the Holocaust. And you're like, no, all genocides are pretty bad. And just because it wasn't as bad as this one doesn't mean we should talk it down. So I think that we need to rethink how we talk about history in that regard. We have a habit of doing a brush stroke of history of what is the most convenient, what is best for upholding a narrative, what is the easiest digest. And I think that American history is guilty of this a little bit more than other people's history. I mean, I can't speak that much to the UK history because we didn't learn about that that much. But I saw this post on Instagram the other day where someone was like, American history is like slavery happened, but then Lincoln fixed it and it was okay. And then segregation happened, but Martin Luther King fixed it and then it was okay. But then they killed him, so then they prosecuted the person who killed them, and racism was over. And that is kind of the way that modern day history is taught, isn't it? Anything that sort of challenges the way that the country perceives themselves is forgotten or sort of swept under the rug. And that's really damaging because that's how mistakes are repeated. That's how history is repeated. That's how we don't make any progress. That's how segregation and police brutality are allowed to continue. And that's how we've ended up where we are today. When I was reading all this stuff about street names, there are those statue defenders who just say, oh, it's our history and they should just be left alone to stay there without any regard for obviously the pain it causes black people to walk past those statues. But some German had a very interesting solution to the street names thing and said a street name should have all the street names it has ever been. That should be the name of the street. It should have multiple street names. So Mohrenstrasse used to be called something else. If it's changed again, it would be called something else. If it's changed again, it should be called like... So all of the, st the previous street names of, you know, one particular street should all be posted. Maybe, I mean, for practicality's sake, you would just use one of them. But you would see the history of all the street names that came before. And that sounds complicated, but like you were saying, history is complicated and complex and you could see all the relations then between the stuff, you know? You could see then the relationship between like, oh, there was colonialism and then there was Nazis. There's a whole complexity in the geography that is being acknowledged. 
But also, I feel like this kind of approach would reveal the layers and the the multiple layers of our history and the way that we're all kind of linked or a lot of stuff is linked also within ourselves. I was thinking about um, Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other, which I recommend if you're looking for books by black women to read. She's great. That book is great. And one really racist white figure, she does one of these DNA tests and then she figures out that she's black at the end. And you could see in her psychology, oh my god, spoiler alert, sorry <laughs> if you haven't read the book. Uh, it's one of the most touching moments in the book as well. But anyway, read it anyway. But one of the most touching moments is you can really see that something in her changes because she realizes, oh, whoa, I am the other. I'm linked to all that. There was a really complicated history that involved immigration and colonialism and just movement. Like, it's not so simple. Things are not literally black and white. All of us have different things in us. And there's a program on PBS called Finding Your Roots. This genealogy stuff has become really big also in the US, which I think might go some way to maybe solving racism. But anyway, Ben Affleck famously tried to hide his slave-owning roots because a lot of people on this show find out the uncomfortable truth that their ancestors were slave owners. And Ben Affleck tried to hide this. And it's kind of reflective of what you were saying is like white people are very reluctant to admit a lot of stuff because there is a lot of guilt and it is very uncomfortable. But then if you're not admitting this, again, you're erasing and whitewashing history, which is no way to deal with it. Also, Ben Affleck, he is so annoying. How, first of all, what did Jennifer Lopez ever seen him second of all with the me too thing he was just like oh harvey like i told him to stop raping women he knew what was going on all this time he's just like that why have we not cancelled ben affleck p.s if you haven't heard our episode on cancel culture do that now so i just recently found out that the uk abolished slavery in 1833 by agreeing to pay slave owners for their loss of property they paid them a sum of 20 million pounds, which today would be 300 billion pounds. And a transfer of wealth from the taxpayer to the slave owners so huge that the debts that occurred were only paid off in 2015. So basically, everyone who has paid taxes in the UK has contributed to this bill. That's some shit. Also, like, Benedict Cumberbatch's family made their money off of slaves. And I feel like this is a well-known fact. Or maybe it's not a well-known fact. But nobody talks about it. And I don't think he's ever publicly sort of in any way dealt with that. And he's such a fan favorite. Like, if we're going to rile on about Ben Affleck, then the Cumberbatches... I think there was a thing where he on purpose didn't use, isn't Cumberbatch his mother's name or something? Or he on purpose didn't use one of his family names because if you Google it, you find all about their like slave owning history. So basically, if you were a UK taxpayer, you're paying money to Benedict Cumberbatch's family for owning people. Think about that for a second and then cancel Benedict Cumberbatch because he's a gross human. Yeah, as a UK taxpayer, I'm disgusted that my taxes have gone to slave owners and the families of slave owners. And what's really interesting here is David Cameron, Gladwell, everyone in power, everyone, all these rich British families have benefited from this and continue to do so. 
and talking about stories and history, the BBC and the British media continues to idolize like statues in a way and glorify the British elite and the aristocracy. All of that downtown Abbey uh, period drama stuff, just keep on making it and making it and making it. Hello, what about the slaves? What about all of their terrible deeds? What about that part of the story? To be fair, just recently, the BBC, they did dramatize, I think it was the BBC. Everyone's going on about it. I haven't seen it. What is known as the Windrush scandal, which happened very recently. And it's when a bunch of people who were born in the UK or have been living there for years and years and years were all of a sudden just yanked out of their homes and their jobs and everything and kind of detained or deported because of I guess an administrative mistake or something in the civil service. Thousands and thousands of lives were really impacted by this. I mean, just imagine all of a sudden they say, oh, you know, you're in here illegally. This is not your home. And what happened was during colonial times, which is also why I was born in the UK, because my parents were born in a British colony, which meant that they were invited because of the immigration terms at that time, you were born with a British passport and you were allowed to live in the UK. And then later on, immigration controls got stricter and stricter. But all of those people were there legally. And obviously, if I was born in the UK, which happened to colonize the country that my parents were born in, I mean, I'm British and I'm there to stay. That's the consequence of that. But a lot of these people's lives were uprooted. And then there was an inquiry into this. And one of the main things that was identified as a problem was that civil servants and people of the government didn't know enough about British colonial history to make the right decisions on this. They just didn't know it, which just shows how harmful it is when you don't know your history. So know your history, people. If you like this podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us. I am at Rena underscore Grobe underscore and Madvi is at Madvi Romani. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore MS underscore informed or shoot us an email misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You will find links to our Twitter and Instagrams in our show notes, as well as links to all the content we have discussed this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.